In this episode of the About Death podcast, we do talk about some adult themes. If you've little ones around, grab your headphones now. And a reminder that these conversations are all real and can sometimes be a bit raw. Remember, you've always got the option to pause and to take a break from it. Our show notes contain links to more information about support that you can access. Essentially, it felt like the, the foundation of my life was had gone. If if you describe that the the most important things in your life, as I think I've established, is is family, um, and the the home where, that you live in is no longer your home. The the family that is is your family is essentially minus a leg, so to speak. Um, it, it felt like a seismic shift, and I just did not or had not tried to understand how I would need to process something like that. And um, it literally turned my life upside down. Hello, you're listening to the About Death podcast, and I'm Sam Meikle. Talking about dying and death can make us feel uncomfortable, awkward, or embarrassed, as we're not always sure what to say and when. Through this podcast, you'll hear why and how people start talking about dying and death, and if they didn't, what they wish they might have said, and the impact this has had on their lives and on the lives of those they love. Around kitchen tables in pubs and cafes, we're having conversations to help you explore how you think, feel, and talk about death. Nick says that he's always actively avoided talking about the topic of death. And two weeks before we sat down to record this conversation, Nick's mum received a diagnosis with six months left to live. And the key message from this episode is that if you are finding it uncomfortable or awkward, or you're not quite sure what to say, know that you're not alone. And we weren't quite sure how this conversation was going to go, but we found actually just laying it out on the table, having a bit of a laugh and talking about normal things really helped. Welcome to Nick's story. To start off, where's your accent from? I get asked that question a lot. I'm actually from the South Coast, but I have an annoying habit of appropriating other people's accents whenever I'm around them. So I too tend to get a bit of a twang. I hear you. And um, when I did my first podcast interview, I was talking about my time in Australia and I was like, I really am an Australian. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear it. Um, and where have you spent most of your life? Uh, well, I grew up on the South Coast, so I was down there for 20 years living and studying in a town where people generally go to die, actually. Um, and then I moved to London after that. Um, a lion's share of my childhood was on the South Coast, but I spent a lot of time also in France with where the majority of my family is. And who's, where's the French side? My mother. Your mother. Yes. And an English dad. Yeah, well, he's, he's mostly English, part French as well. Are you fluent? Let's say no. <laughs> <laughs> I know Nick before the interview and I beg to differ. Um, to think, like, let's start at the very beginning. Um, growing up as a child, what did you know about dying and death? 
you could say thankfully I probably didn't have that much exposure to it at a very young age um, I don't think my parents uh, actively tried to shield either me or my sister from it but um, neither did the occasion arise that we actually were forced to confront it in any particular way uh, there was nothing immediate um, so it was fairly limited I would say and did you have pets as kids? <laughs> yes, yes. I uh, both my sister and I had uh, had a fish each. Um, hers was called Chips, and so I was going to call mine Fish. Um, but then I saw Herbie goes to Monte Carlo and decided to call it Herbie. Nice. And were these long living fish? Um, no. <laughs> well. I mean, it wasn't like they um, kind of were brought home from the fairground and were um, gone within a week. But um, uh, uh, my my goldfish died, I think, within uh, six to nine months of, of my having it. Um, I should hasten to add that it was not through my own neglect, but through the uh, pet sitter that we, we recruited, who was actually a next-door neighbor, who didn't do a very good job of looking after my fish whilst we were back in France. So I came back to discover that the fish was no more. That's very sad. Yes, that was. I don't know why I'm smiling. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first exposure to the loss of you know something to me. I'm smiling because um, I had a similar experience with a pet sitter where they decided they were going to change the water in our fish tank. Oh no! And they took all the rocks out and really cleaned it. Really cleaned it. Yeah. Put the water in. Filter put the fish in mm. and then the rocks oh great oh you're kidding <laughs> i shouldn't laugh should i it's terrible um what do you know about dying and death now as an adult um as much as i should more than i want to in if i'm honest um i, I haven't uh probably had the most traumatic um exposure to the death in itself other than having lost loved ones um i don't know i mean it's it's one of those things that i've actually always tried to actually avoid thinking about until i've been forced to but i have been forced to in the last in the last uh, 10 years probably uh, more than i had expected or sooner than i'd expected in what ways <clears throat> uh well there, i mean the being from such a large family, um, Catholic family in France with um, eight aunts and uncles in total, um, they all got to, um, I guess, a certain age, you'd say, and um, it was a bit like dominoes, unfortunately. <laughs> um, uh, and then subsequently there was the, the, the diagnosis that my dad received for, for um, prostate cancer, which he, which he beat. Um, and then rather unusually was then diagnosed with a, another primary cancer with, with no relation to the initial, initial prostate cancer, which was lung cancer, um, which took him, I suppose, fairly quickly in about the space of, I guess, nine months, less than nine months. It was fairly aggressive. Um, and having tried so hard to avoid 
death and conversations about it, I was thrust into that quite hard. My family is very loving, very close, very intense experience, and it's kind of an immersion into the entire experience, which I suppose is probably normal. But um, I, I, that was a hammer blow to me. I, I, I lost so much weight. It did not anticipate how it would affect me, but it did. What do you remember about that time? Um, there were a number of negative things going on in my life at that time anyway. Um, uh, a difficult breakup with um, my wife at the time um, combined with the, the diagnosis um, meant that essentially it felt like the, the foundation of my life was had gone. If, if you'd describe that the the most important things in your life as i think i've established is is family um and the the home that you live in is no longer your home the the family that is is your family is essentially minus a leg so to speak um it, it felt like a seismic shift and i just did not or had not tried to understand how i would need to process something like that and um, it literally turned my life upside down. How did you get through it? Badly. I handled it badly. Um, I was, a, I suppose, a stereotypical male about the whole thing. Didn't talk about it to anyone. Internalized it. Um, ended up making myself ill. And um, probably took a lot longer to deal and process with it um, as a result because of the kind of machismo or male pride of not wanting or being able to talk about it. Um, not that I didn't have the avenues or the doors open to me to do that because my family is a very open family, but I actively eschewed every opportunity to do so. Why? I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess the pride thing was definitely an element to it. Um, it exposure of a weakness i don't know i didn't want to cry um the one time that i did cry was at my dad's funeral um and i i guess i didn't want to make it real so actively talking about it would have would have brought some solidity to it and uh, i was actively seeking to enjoy that uh, not enjoy that avoid that how does that feel now looking back on that time oh in hindsight i feel like an idiot um i'm not saying that i've necessarily learned from any of those lessons or at least i'm i had tried to but i am i'm i'm still conscious of the fact that um with my mum's recent cancer diagnosis i'm still by default trying to avoid the conversations that she is trying to engage us in that's tough <laughs> Uh, it's uh, well I mean I suppose it's good to uh, be aware of it but um, it probably would be healthier and better for me if I was to actually try and do something about it what would you do I think I would need to proactively start the conversation myself rather than have the conversation I don't want to say thrust on me but um, it's it's one of those things where you're only at certain moments in in a place where you feel ready to talk about it or want to engage with someone. And um, whenever my mum wants to talk about it, it's not necessarily something 
that I want to talk about it at that moment in time. I'd rather go away, process it, think about it a lot, a lot, a lot, and then come back and then revisit the conversation. How do you think about it? Um, in very practical terms, really. I mean, I, I, I immediately leap to how am I going to make things better? And uh, so I suppose there is an emotional element to it as well. I do instinctively want to make things better, but um, my way of addressing that is to think of things that I can do that will ease the situation for someone or for myself. Um, that's probably the instinctive thing. Um, luckily, the dynamic between me and my sister is that we divide and conquer in terms of attacking difficult situations within the family. So we kind of complement each other in that way. What's her approach? Why is she choosing to divide and conquer this task? Um, which task are we talking about in particular? The difficult conversation with your mum. Well, to be honest, it's more my mum that's, that's engaging the conversation with us. Um, and my sister is really happy to talk about her feelings um, and have those kind of, let's call them deep and meaningful conversations. Uh, and I'm almost more comfortable with her having that conversation, relaying it to me as a kind of <laughs> bystander. I, I then have time to process it and then I can return to the conversation with my mum saying, ah, Kaz said you said this. And that way, that's our way of kind of, um, she's the shield. <laughs> um, how does your mum raise it with you? Directly, bluntly, without preamble. For example? Um, um, well, she doesn't announce that she'd like to have a conversation about it. She literally dump, jumps into it and says, I was thinking about uh, how I would like to be buried. Um, I don't want to be buried in a box because I'm terrified that I'll wake up and be underground and trapped in a box. So you need to burn me. Um, I don't, is there any other way to respond to that question other than okay? <laughs> and you're making a cup of tea in the background or something and it, it comes and hits you across the back of the head. Yes, basically. Yeah. Um, I, I'm able to think of it in fairly abstract terms. Like that's a situation that I am going to have to face at X point. I now have that information of what she would like to have happen in that situation. That is good to have that information. I don't want to think about the fact of everything that goes around it, but um, I try to approach it that way. Um, in terms of the practicalities are you documenting them with your mum or is it all in up in your head? That's a good question. Um, no, we're not documenting it. Um, although that is maybe something we should give some thought to maybe for some of the financial aspects of her life. We would, we certainly did for my dad. Um, we have power of attorney over my mum um, already. Um, uh, but no, those kind of things is that's, uh, aren't in her will. So that's probably something that's definitely worth considering. 
and just thinking ahead it kind of can take some of that emotion out of the, mm. the situation um and you mentioned just before we started the interview that you had an appointment with your mum yesterday mm. and they changed the advice that they had on her prognosis yes can you tell us about that um well, when she was initially discharged from the hospital where she was being treated, the um, sarcoma orthopedic um, registrar had uh, intimated that she had six months left to live. Um, and that had kind of shaken us up quite a lot. Um, that was something that we hadn't expected to hear. I had been um, willfully thinking that the oncologist that had been treating her for her previous cancer was going to be able to not magically make it all go away when none of us were that kind of ridiculously optimistic, but at least um, be able to prolong her life a lot longer than six months, certainly um, because she seems to be in such fine fettle. Uh, it seemed hard to imagine that someone could just deteriorate that badly to such an extent that she would be dead in six months. So that was all a massive shock and very difficult for us to process. Um, my initial reaction to that was no, you know, let's, my gut says this is not correct. Um, let's wait until we see the oncologist that has been so good, um, which we had an appointment for yesterday. And after having spent the last five, six days trying to process this kind of very stern opinion that that she had six months left and my mum had been busy reconciling herself to that and she had in fact accepted it um made her peace with it i think she said um and then when the appointment with the oncologist happened despite the um, administrative snafu that meant the appointment almost didn't happen which, which of course added to the stress of the day um, and he indeed confirmed what I hoped he would and said, no, we, there's a good chance that we can actually not make this go away, but certainly extend this well beyond six months. Um, it might be 12 months, might be 18, might be 24. We don't know, but it's certainly six months is very pessimistic. And um, my mum was on the phone to me straight away because I wasn't with her. My sister was. And she goes, you're right. This is great. This is fantastic. I should have listened to you all along. <laughs> <laughs> um, which was obviously brilliant, lifted my day completely, lifted all of our moods completely. I mean, none of us were so um, blind to the fact that we obviously know that she is going to be going, but it, that kind of stay that she's been given um, means that we've got a lot longer to try and process and deal with all of these things rather than this kind of death knell, which seems to have been kind of unilaterally passed down to us by some chap in a hospital who we didn't really know. Um, it's been a roller coaster a few days, that's for sure. And it's interesting listening to people's experiences of when a loved one is in critical care of what their experiences with clinicians are mm. and people's share often they think the clinicians are trying to tell them something that they're not quite getting at that point mm. um and but later on they can piece together going well actually they told us mum had this at this stage if we were in a different frame of mind yeah um how do you think healthcare professionals and social care professionals talk about dying and death honestly the ones that i've been exposed to over the last four weeks 
it has felt like they were trying to protect themselves more than caring more about the the patient or the or the family's feelings um, by immediately stating the worst case scenario and uh, presenting the n- most negative possible situation from the outset, um, which I don't think is necessarily pos- um, positive for people's mindsets. I understand it from a practical perspective completely, uh, and certainly people want and need to be in possession of all the facts. Actually, maybe they don't. Maybe they want to be ignorant of the whole thing. Um, certainly in our family, that would be the case. To be to know all the facts is great, but you, you know your bedside manner, mate, maybe work on that. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that, 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 yes, they give us all the information we need to, the way they deliver it, not great. Um, and their attitude to it was clinical more than compassionate, shall we say. I um, I sat down with a surgeon once and said, if he could make any change in health and social care, what would it be? And then he goes, I'm a surgeon, I get three. I was like, great, okay. Um, <laughs> he said he would have more time, more touch, and more compassion mm. from staff to patients. And he said if he could go into every medical school across the country, mm. like, these three things matter. Yeah. Um, and another person I spoke to said, you know, the the last moments of someone's life can be what you're left with and can remove or dampen a lifetime of happy memories. I think that is absolutely spot on. Uh, Certainly given the, the way my dad's passing came about, um, that really kind of echoes with me quite strongly. Would you be comfortable to talk about that? Yes. What, what were his last 24, 48 hours like? Uh, dying of thirst. Uh, as opposed to cancer, which is bloody awful. Um, we didn't understand that ourselves. Uh, and that is one of my mum's biggest fears, that when she does go that she will be in that kind of situation where she's she's clearly dying. She's perhaps not able to express herself or her needs. Um, I'm not the brightest spark in the box. I'm not a nurse. I might not be able to understand what she might be needing. Uh, I'm So I'm scared that I wouldn't be able to anticipate her needs. And she's terrified of suffering the way that my dad did. Um, it was looking back makes me feel awful all of us makes us all feel awful to think that it was like that for him it's quite shocking to hear that (laughs) yeah uh they 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 concern themselves with many things such as pain management which is important of course um you want someone to be as comfortable as possible in their passing and you want people to be able to have time to make their peace with it make peace with their family if they need to and the family needs to know that 
their loved one is as comfortable as can possibly be. And that realization that one of those fundamental elements was missing, um, mortifying, not literally, but obviously. Mm. <sighs> um, are you okay? Yeah. How will you approach conversations with your mum in the next month, two months, six months? Any conversations? That's an interesting question, actually, because it's something that we've touched on recently. Um, and she said that one of the things that has really been important to her over the last few weeks, especially the last few days when she's been contemplating her mortality more than she had been, was that she just wanted people to be normal around her and to talk to her about boring, mundane things and not avoid talking to her just because, oh, there's this specter of death in the room. Um, and she's come back to it quite a few times. And she's, I think she was saying to me this morning that she even went as far as putting something on Facebook about it to try and encourage people that might be fearful of contacting her for having to talk about that ugly cancer word or dying or, or, or any of those nasty things that they don't want to or are too embarrassed to talk about. She just wanted to hear about mundane things. Talk about Brexit. Talk about Brexit. <laughs> talk about the hubcap falling off the car, as was, as was the example that she gave me this morning. And I thought, that just makes complete sense. Um, I'm not sure that it's something that I would be comfortable doing. Um, I think I'd probably want to not talk to anybody at all, personally. But if you were in her shoes. If I was in her shoes, I think I would probably become a recluse. Um, but but her attitude is, no, no, I am going to make the absolute best of the time that I've got left. If you want to come and talk to me about how your begonias are doing, let's talk about it. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> um, and I'm my heart feels very warm to hear that. A, a big drive for this work is how to have conversations with people about mm. what's important to them. Mm. And that may be, do you want to be buried or cremated? Or actually, let's talk about the bloody begonias. Yeah. And it's what matters to you at that time. And I think often we can over-medicalize mm. or over-legalize. Or, you know, my dad has the spreadsheet called Where the Money Is. Mm. And that is his view of preparing. Yeah. But I think there's so much more that goes behind that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when when my when my dad was still mobile before he became bed bound, um, he was hugely practical about everything. And I remember there was a there was a time when um, I went home to spend some time with the family, and he was organising all the paperwork. And he took me upstairs, and he he was he, he was saying, "I want you to look at all of these files. This is where I keep this. You'll need to know this for mummy and all of that kind of stuff." But he was not a hugely demonstrative man, affectionate, um, although he became more so as he got older. But the entire time that we were having that conversation, there were tears in his eyes whilst he was doing that. And uh, that was awkward and difficult, but that was his way of processing it and trying to make things okay for people anticipating how it would be for us afterwards and trying to make it as easy as possible for us, which is 
absolutely him to a T. So one aim from these podcast episodes is to have conversations earlier. Mm. But the other one, the bigger, more broader, ambitious one I would love to see is how do we make a conscious choice on how we live? And I think if we talk about what we imagine or would want our end to be, does that influence how we live our life now? Mm. What do you think? Should it influence? Is that the question? Should it influence how we live our life now? Should it? Could it? Would it? Um, perhaps. I'm not going to die anyway. I'm going to live forever. Are you? I'm going to be cryogenically frozen. <laughs> Ian says to me, you're going to send my um, ashes into space. And we, I was like, absolutely not. He's like, no, I will. <laughs> He's like, I'll come back to haunt you until you push my ashes into space. Absolutely. You're quite right. Oh, um, what does the phrase a good death mean to you? At the top end, I would say a good death would be going when you choose, having a choice about it. Uh, but I suppose realistically, um, it's having the time to process it. It's having time for your loved ones to process it. Um, and, uh, apart from the obvious comfort elements, which I think are often important, if it is going to be something that you have an advanced warning of, um, I would like to think there would be no unfinished business or no words unsaid. So if I was forced into the position where I knew I had a finite time left and it was two weeks, two months, two years, um, I'd want to make sure that the, the, the conversations that I avoided or shied away from were had. Um, equally that the people that I cared for knew that I cared for them and that we had time to enjoy together beforehand. Can I be a bit challenging? Go on. I reckon you can do that now. I think I'm 50% there already. I've never been shy of expressing my thoughts or opinions. Um, I've never been ex shy of expressing my love for people. Um, however, making the most of life before the, the bucket list element say, um, perhaps not. And yeah, perhaps you're right. Do you have a bucket list? I've, I have a to-do list that's looking pretty long, but no bucket list. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, places I want to places I want to go yes there is a, a long list of places that I would feel that I had not lived my life properly if I hadn't seen them or enjoyed them experienced them um, in terms of experiences no not really but yeah I guess there is a bucket list if you're comfortable to share mm. how do you explore your thoughts and feelings about your own death um or do you? I don't think I do actively, um, other than fearing it massively. Uh, I really sincerely don't want to die. 
it's not the act of dying that I fear. I just really don't want to be not here anymore. Well, and you said you're going to be cryogenically frozen, so... That's my flippant way of saying that, basically. Yeah. Yes. What is it about not being here? Oh, it's the fear of what comes after. Um, if I'm honest, um, which I suspect is pretty fine, um, pretty definite. Um, I don't know if that's one of the questions on your list, but um, I don't think there is anything after. I'm not that way inclined. Um, so I feel that, that that when I die, that's it. And there's nothing left behind other than memories. Um, so, uh, yeah. That. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> We've not even had a drink yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you have a religious upbringing? You mentioned Catholicism. Um... So Catholic family in France, uh, in the sense that, um, they were raised, um, in Catholic schools and so on. Uh, however, I was Protestant. I was christened. Um, and, uh, I had some exposure to Sunday school. Um, I never had any form of religion forced on me. It was left as an option. Um, and, I decided not to take up that option. Yeah. It, as you know, I have a complicated rela uh, relationship with uh, my Catholic upbringing. Yeah. And I remember it being, I couldn't have been more than five or six at my first confession. And the priest, I mean, being in this tiny, tiny room with him. And he said, Samantha, if you don't confess, you're going to hell. And I was like, but I don't have anything to confess. <laughs> and he's like, but it's really serious. You need to say all of the sins that you've done because mm. otherwise you will go to hell. So I remember making something up. <laughs> which, which in looking itself. Back, <laughs> I was like, oh, hang on. <laughs> but I remember being so afraid of this. I don't even know what to call it, but this, yeah, this, this fear of what could happen to me if I, I do things wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mother was raised, not raised by nuns, but she was schooled by nuns. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that having that Catholic element in her life probably not, I don't want to say foisted upon her, but it was, she was fairly unveiled in the whole thing. And, um, I think that then led her to not want me or my sister to be forced down any particular road uh, and for us to make our own decisions and choices about where uh, or if we had a faith in that way. Is her faith still present for her now? Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, I think that despite the fact that she... Um, obviously has some some negative um memories and experiences from 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 her schooling in that way and she is a very scientific analytical logical person 
Um, I think there's still definitely a por- por- portion or part of her that does believe in some higher spiritual power. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, whilst she just also tries to rationalize it, I think there still always will be a part of her that, that does. And I can imagine that's a comfort. I see that in my elderly relatives, this comfort of the structure, the prayers, the formality in mm. your times of difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that she necessarily sees it as something that she has to fall back on. Okay. Um, but I think that she does still carry that somewhere around in her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We did talk about it the other day, in fact, when we were having our conversation about death. Uh, and she was, she kind of, made reference to the, the ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And the idea that she wanted to be cremated was just a way of accelerating all of our, the return of all of our energy back into the world. Um, and she thought that the, the idea that, that all of these tiny bits of energy around in not just the world, but the universe and the fact that all of these things came together and it came to form that the earth that we live live on now and that when we die, we kind of go back and then we feed that cycle for her. She thought it was fascinating and brilliant and she preferred to view it that way rather than I'm dying and I'm going to be dead and there'll be nothing left of me. That's beautiful. (laughs) Did you have that conversation in French or English? In English. In English? Yeah. How does it the- probably sounded better in French though? <laughs> Is Frenchness the word I'm looking for? Is it- how does being French or having a French upbringing, how does that play into it? What do you notice of your English friends? Uh, there is a contrast. Um, we are, um, quite comfortable talking about our feelings broadly, um, and expressing them. Um, and we were raised in a very affectionate way, um, particularly by my mother, but in the wider family as well. And I I think that that has shaped um, how comfortable we are around each other and also how comfortable we are around other people as well. Um, so yes, it's, you, I don't, whether you would call that Frenchness, I don't know. I, maybe it's Latin. Outside of this conversation, who do you talk to about dying and death? Uh, well, aside from my mother quite a lot recently, uh, I, I have discussed the topic with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been great to know that I have friends that I can feel comfortable, a comfortable talking to them about it and b that they can make the right noises back. Um, uh, work colleagues, I'm quite comfortable sharing and letting them understand the situation that I'm in, that my family's in, um, not necessarily looking for any kind of, uh, patting on the back or anything like that. But, um, I feel that that, kind of openness is is important and how do you start that conversation i'm blunt and i come straight out and say it people would ask me 
hey, Nick, how are you? And I will say, well, let me tell you, <laughs> I'm a bit crap because. That seems to get the message across. <laughs> Your mum does a similar thing to you. Yeah, she does. Yeah, and but I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, I, I, I would prefer things to be that way, mm-hmm. personally. I'm hugely practical when it comes to organising, doing everything in my life. But when it comes to something like this, I will run away from thinking about it or doing anything about it. Do you think that will change? I, I think my mum is forcing me to change. Uh, and um, I grudgingly am grateful for it. And I'm sure I'll be even more grateful for it, um, both when the time comes for her passing, but also um, when I'm in a similar situation again or for myself or my partner. Um so yes, I think it is a good thing that she's doing that and I will benefit from it, um, if not immediately, later on. Is there anything you change about how you talk with her? Mm, no, no. I mean, she's always going to be the person that talks more than me. Um, that's always been the dynamic. <laughs> um and I'm quite happy listening to her. Um, she moves, she moves, she moves things forward. She gets things said. She gets things done. And um, the fact that she's she feels comfortable and able to come out and say these things, whether it's talking about death or cancer or practicalities or don't stick me in a box, please burn me. Yes, it's difficult, but at the same time, it's brilliant. And that is how she tackles everything else in life. So why wouldn't she? do this and the fact that she can actively anticipate how it's going to feel for us and trying to make it as easy on us as possible it's just just brilliant I can imagine proud mums listening to this going oh isn't he such a lovely son (laughs) (laughs) you're a lovely boy Nick (laughs) thinking about the the chart the map that you did Mm. are there any other threads that came out of that that we haven't touched on? In relation to talking about death and dying, um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think that the, the, aside from the the fish, Herbie, um, and uh, the kind of gentle introduction that I had throughout my life, um, to the concept of dying, I think that it's it's been really, really okay until it really wasn't. Um, I don't think I actually went to my first funeral until um, until I guess probably my mid to late twenties. What was that like? Uh, just like you see it on TV. It was exactly like the, the I imagined it would be. Um, stiff, um, formal, um, people unsure how to act and behave. Um, and I was, I count myself amongst those people who was really unsure. Um, particularly, I think, in, in, in the UK where people are a little bit 
my sense is that people are a little bit more scared to show their feelings and their emotions. I think that the funerals are probably the biggest test for them because they obviously are upset, but there's a sense of decorum about the entire experience where if it was a wedding, everyone would be going, yay. Um, and for a funeral, you can e either treat it as a, a celebration of that person's life, um, which is how we, we, we try to do things for my father or uh, a very, very somber experience, which I don't think it ever should be. And that, that was my experience, I think for the first one. What would you like for you? Lots of irreverent jokes, which would be entirely in keeping with me. Get writing. <laughs> <laughs> what does your mum want? Um, aside from cremation, um, being scattered, having her ashes scattered at sea, or by the seaside rather, um, we haven't really got that far. Um, I, I, I think that that she certainly would not want a somber experience by any stretch. Um, none of us in the family particularly like funerals. My mum loves a party loves a dance, um, loves the odd glass of vino. Um, and she, th th I think the thought for her that people would be sad or crying or, uh, or any of that would be the complete opposite of what she would want. Uh, I'm absolutely certain of that. That's pretty cool. Um, what has this conversation brought up for you that you may not have been thinking about or have thought in a, in a while? Being the practical person that I am, the, the conversation about um, how my mum would like to do certain things is probably a conversation that will need to happen, and I hadn't even considered that it would need to happen. Um, your challenge to me um, on, on making more of the life that we have now. Um, which is true because you, you can't just go through life expecting that you're probably going to live until you're 70 or 80 or 90, despite whatever medical advances there may be. You might well get hit by an asteroid or run over by a bus tomorrow. Um, so yes, perhaps our attitudes to life in general um, should change. Mine in particular. Maybe I should you know, be seizing the day more not responsible for any future actions that Nick takes as a result of this and also if an asteroid strikes I did not know about it coming I promise <laughs>